With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to the Sharpening Report. I am very pleased to announce we have a returning guest tonight, Dr. Judd Burton, author of Interview with the Giant, plus several groundbreaking uh, papers. And his website is burtonbeyond.com. If you'd like to learn more, we will have that link for you in the description below. Judd, it's great to have you back on the Sharpening Report. How are you doing? Uh, great to be back, Josh. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, I'm really glad that you reached out and uh, wanted to do this. Uh, th this is one of my favorite topics, and I want to just jump right in because, as you know, uh, because you actually contributed an interview for this, uh, I have a new book coming out later this year on the Dead Sea Scrolls, the scenes and prophecy. And I know the whole topic of the Dead Sea Scrolls is something you've always had an interest in as well. Uh, what first led to that interest? How, how did you first get introduced to this topic, and what, what was it about it that you found so appealing? Well, the the Dead Sea Scrolls, I should say that I was exposed to them in in church, but not in a, a, a churchy kind of a, a way, I guess might be a way, <laughs> a way because it, they were always this sort of uh, uh, nebulous, uh, you know, arcane set of documents, you know, that that the preacher would drop, you know, every now and again, or you'd hear about it in Sunday school or uh, something like that. You know, it, it was, uh, they, they might as well have been written in Elvish, you know, and stocked <laughs> away in some cave in Middle Earth. Uh, but no, I, I, my exposure to them just in terms of concept and name w was fairly early on. And I'm almost certain that it was a combination of, of my dad talking about who who has taught Sunday school for decades uh, told me about this this other arm of Judaism that existed during the second temple period in the first century you know when Jesus was around the Essenes you know the the Sadducees and the Pharisees were the ones that got top billing but uh, the Essenes were these these strange fellows that don't get mentioned uh, except for in the margins and the periphery of, of whatever, uh, you know, lesson might be put forward. Uh, and I'm, I, the other exposure I'm almost certain was under uh, the late Dr. George Knight, who was a, a, a mentor of mine. And he was the, the brother-in-law of, of our pastor and would come over and do Bible studies. And he was an archaeologist too. And so a lot of, a lot of his field experience helped to illustrate some pretty salient points uh, in those studies. And I'm almost certain as a youngster, I, I, while picking his brain after these study sessions, <laughs> I was probably the only eight or nine year old or, in these in a room full of men you know in these january bible studies that he would do and he would graciously you know answer all my questions and i'm i'm, I'm almost positive that part of my exposure was was then but it really wasn't until i got into college and i began to take 
Bible classes, theology classes, a history of, of biblical lands and the, the church uh, that I began to, to really sort of dive into the Dead Sea Scrolls proper. Um, and I think it really, as we talked about on our last, our, our last show, you know, my ex, the expedition to Banyas that sort of, or Peneus, Caesarea Philippi, that sort of set me down on this road, really sort of opened that world of the Dead Sea Scrolls up to me, particularly the, the, the apocryphal material, uh, that had to do with Mount Hermon. Uh, and that, that, in a nutshell, was kind of my introduction to uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. But as I say, it wasn't it, it wasn't until I was actually prepping to leave for that expedition to Banias that that I actually started reading, you know, stuff like the Book of Enoch and the the Genesis Apocryphon and uh, Jubilees and some of the other stuff that that's in the, the apocryphal cache of the Dead Sea Scrolls that shed light directly on on the the significance in the Jewish mind as to as to why that that region w- was important on a cosmic level yeah yeah definitely and, and uh, I, I think that's so cool how you know how pivotal but, but mysterious this group really is. Um, can you explain the landscape of the, the time of Jesus? Who, who were the main Jewish sects that you mentioned? You know, Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes. And why is it that we don't actually see the word Essenes anywhere in the Gospels when they were clearly a, a well-known group? You know, they, they were influential in the uh, community at the time. Uh, what, 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 what's, the, what's the story there in the Gospels? Why don't we see Essenes mentioned? Well, the uh, of course, as listeners will probably be familiar with, the, you know, those the main three, and there certainly were other sects of Judaism. Yeah. But you're the, the uh, you know, particularly during such a tumultuous time as the first century A.D., um, you know, some of those are, are are you know combinations of religious and political movements like the Zealots, mm-hmm. uh, but the. Uh, the big three were the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Essenes. Uh, with the third one being the, le- the 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 lesser of the three in terms of, of number. Yeah. Uh, but not not influence, uh, as I think you and I would agree on. But the Sadducees were really the they were the temple bureaucracy. Uh, you know, they were the um, the overarching um, sort of theocratic court if you will, uh, consisting, of course, of priests. And the Pharisees were the, they're often referred to as the scribes and elders in, uh, uh, in the Gospels and the New Testament. Uh, and these were your, basically the lawyers and scholars of all of the, not, not just the Mosaic Law, but all the minutia and commentary uh, that went along with them. That's, that's why they're the most haggling of, of Jesus's uh, haggling is probably not the right word, but the the, the most uh, annoying <laughs> of of the crowd uh, crowds that Jesus draw because they have all the the little higgly piggly uh, uh, questions for Jesus, and then you have the Essenes who broke away um, as early as the fourth century, but probably into the third century uh, BC. Excuse me, um, they had seen that the the sort of 
corruption. I think it was a different kind of corruption in the Second Temple period, but uh, this the sort of my my take on it is that they saw the legalism that was growing was basically bastardizing the the state of Judaism that Yahweh had had presented to the Jews, and they were like, "We're out of here. You know, we're not going to be doing this anymore." Um, and so they they leave to the um, uh, the desert regions on the the borders of the Transjordan. Uh, and set up these communities, um, monastic communities, uh, in, in essence, uh, in, in which they they practice a form of Judaism that they felt called to practice. Uh, it was um, it was an expectant, it, you know, j- just just from reading the literature, it was a more expectant. Uh, Messianic-driven, apocalyptic-driven sect of Judaism than the other two were, um, which is why I think that a number of them, I think, demonstrably, even not not only not only from material written material that we find from from Jewish authors, but also outside authors, prove that that these. Um, uh, the Essenic Jews actually be- became, at least in, in some of their numbers, became Christians eventually because of the theology and the the ritual uh, that they practice, and and a lot of the phraseology that they share with with figures in the New Testament like John the Baptist and Jesus. Yeah, and that was something that was really fascinating in in my research as well. Just seeing that, like once once you really kind of get a grasp of the basics of the Dead Sea Scrolls and then what this group taught, what they believed, you know, who they were, you actually do see uh, quite a bit in the New Testament about it. I mean, in in Acts, for example, I've come to believe that when, uh, and I I could be wrong on this, but I've come to believe there's at least the possibility when Paul was on the road to Damascus that that might not have been Syria, uh, but might have been Qumran, because in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they actually called their community Damascus in, in a couple different places. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it makes more sense why, you know, Paul would um, have to go to the temple to get letters of, you know, authority or, or permission to be able to go to um, Damascus to, to persecute mm-hmm. followers of the way. You know, if that's all the way in Syria, I don't know if they would need permission from the temple in Israel. That that you know, so there's th- there's little right. things like that that when they when you when you take them and kind of group them together, they all pile up and kind of form this this new picture. Um, so how did these groups form? So we have a, a period of about 400 years that's called the silent years between the testaments. Uh, so we have the the end of the Old Testament. Everything makes sense, you know. We we kind of get the story, we know what's going on, and then you turn the page to the New Testament, and all of a sudden there's Pharisees and Sadducees. The whole structure in Israel is completely different. And on the surface, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of explanation uh, for that. So what happened during what's called the 400 silent years that produced these three main groups? And how did the, <clears throat> excuse me, how did the Dead Sea Scrolls actually come to be? Well, well, there's certainly a lot of political upheaval in the region. Um, you know, Israel uh, 
once it's basically reconstituted, or I should say Judah, once it's reconstituted after Babylonian captivity, um, there's there there are these spurts of of sovereignty uh, that that the country will will enjoy, um, but those are are relatively short lived because you you eventually have <clears throat> you know outside powers vying for control over this stretch of land, which has been part of the history of, of ancient Israel, as you well know. Um, but one of the big turning points um, certainly would have been uh, the acquisition of this territory by Alexander in uh, his Macedonian empire. And that's mid, we're talking mid to, to late fourth um, century BC when all of that gets constituted. And of course, in the wake of his death in 325, um, you know, that all the territory that he controlled is sort of divvied up amongst his generals. And the Ptolemies uh, have have the Levant um, initially, uh, but the Seleucids will actually battle uh, the Ptolemies at, at one point and gain control of the Levant. And so um, for the the bulk of that period, you've got, um, like I say, you do have interregnums, if you will, of, of some Jewish control, but it's, it's mainly a Hellenistic state uh, at this point. And you have, you have the, the, basically the descendants of, of Seleucus in this point uh, ruling over Israel. And of course there's another upheaval uh, once the Hellenistic control wanes uh, and that's in 63 BC when Pompey um, one of the triumvirate uh, generals and a, a close friend of Julius Caesar will will basically take the eastern Mediterranean and hand it over to Rome. And so at that point uh, it, it comes directly under Roman control, and um, the, the Romans, of course, cared less about how you worshipped, and because most people in the Mediterranean basin were pagans, without getting too far off base, but they they valued law and order and, and their view of social stability above everything else, which which caused them to clash. Uh, in a lot of cases with the Jews. And so this is sort of the political backdrop of that, that inner, inner biblical period as it's, it's sometimes called those silent years, uh, when a lot is actually taking place in terms of, of, uh, you know, Jewish politics and Jewish theology. Uh, you have this, this, this is the period early, early on when you have the establishment of these sects of Judaism, Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, and the less, lesser ones that certainly existed. But the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees uh, basically were the theological overlords of Judaism at the time. Uh, and um, it's... You know, to the credit of the Essenes, I think they, you know, like I say, they saw the corruptive influence of the the temple bureaucracy and the um, the staunch, um, almost unloving execution of of Judaism uh, as something that was that was foreign to what Yahweh had given to 
the Hebrews, and so they they broke apart. Um, heard a call. I, th- I firmly believe they heard a call to do that. Um, so it, you know, this sort of gives you some idea of uh, politically what's happening uh, in a backdrop during the interbiblical period. Um, like you say, if you're just reading the Bible through, and you you hit the end of the Old Testament and you start into the New Testament, it's like, wait a second, there, there, did we miss a, you know, did we miss a chapter or two in the book here? Uh, and um, without knowing something about the interbiblical period, that's what a, a, a through the Bible reading kind of feels like. Um, but the fact of the matter is that there's a lot politically, historically, culturally, theologically that's significant that's going on during this period. Yeah, definitely. And, and so the Dead Sea Scrolls themselves, are these like books from the main temple library that when these Jews uh, or the sons of Zadok, you know, they go by different names, but that this when this group broke off, um, did they bring these books from the temple library with them or did they, uh, you know, just, just copy them down once they got there? How, how, how did the Dead Sea Scrolls themselves uh, actually come to be? And, and why do you think that they were left there uh, in Qumran? Well, um, and you bring up an inter- interesting point. The Essenes are, are like, many scholars believe that they're sort of the, dis- the intellectual, theological descendants of the Zadokite priests uh, who were the, you know, Bible students the Bible will recall were very staunch, probably the staunchest opponents of the pagan influences um, ag- against Israel at, at the, you know, in the, both the, more so the divided kingdom period, um, it, but the there's definitely some connective tissue there. Now, in terms of of the copies of of material that they had with them, um, it's probably a mixed bag with the original stuff that they took from the temple. Um, probably some of it was original from the temple. Uh, the, some of it's I, I think that I think about 35 or 40 percent of, of the um, Dead Sea Scroll material, that is the material that's been found at Qumran, uh, is is Hebrew Bible material. And then you've got you've got about 30 percent or so of um, apocryphal stuff like Enoch and. Uh, the Genesis Apocryphon and Jubilees. And then um, the rest of it is essentially, um, you know, it, it, it has to do, it, it's like the monastic order. It has to do with the rites and rituals and rules and things like that. All, all of the asceticism and ritual bathing in the mikvah and, um, uh, you know, from from the most sacred of rules down to the most earthly, you know, mundane sorts of things, um, and so that's why I say that at least for that thirty-five or forty percent of material that's Hebrew Bible, it's probably coming from the temple. It's probably a mixed bag. Uh, I mean, part of their function, after all, you know, is scribal, and so they're they're definitely we we definitely get a sense that there there were scriptura at Qumran, so they would have been copying a lot of the stuff. 
these documents were discovered not not too long ago, a few few decades ago. Um, so what what happened? Why were these left? Because in in my research, uh, it, it it seems like the main narrative is kind of you know they they say well there was a big persecution so they fled and they left all their books behind. But I, I don't I don't know because it, it sort of seems like they became Christians and took the you know took the the gospel out to the nations. They they you know were were uh, following the orders of the um, Great Commission. Uh, so do you think that? them leaving uh, the, this treasure trove of, of books, was that done intentionally? Was it done kind of haphazardly because they were trying to get out really fast because of a coming persecution? Or did they have something in mind for that? Uh, why do you think all of these books were, were left where they were? Well, you could certainly argue the persecution arm, but um, you run into things in stuff like Enoch about this this literature being written for a later generation right how how they were going you know how they were going to get that material to whatever generation needed it um this was probably the the best thing that the essenes thought they could do was to you know for, you know bottle it up and protect it as much as they possibly could uh, because as you say, I mean, there's, there's good evidence that, that many of them, um, uh, did become Christians and that this sort of aha moment for me, uh, was in, in, during the course of my dissertation, um, I, I read a number of, uh, Epiphanius's, uh, material. And of course he was a, he was a, a, an early church father who lived in the fourth century AD. And he, he associates uh, the reason that I ran into them is because a group of them apparently ended up in the, the sort of, uh, general Bonius Caesarea Philippi region, uh, over the preceding centuries. Uh, and, and he names, uh, Bashanatus or, or Batania, which is the Latinized version of that, uh, as one of the regions that they ended up in. And he associates these two groups uh, uh, together in terms of their theology and sort of their, their theological trajectory. Um, he mentions the, the Essenes and their order and their practices. And he also mentions the, uh, um, he describes them also as the, the Elkisites and the Nazorians. Uh, and I believe that these are two groups that did did end up converting to um, Christianity uh, just because of of uh, again the, the the theological trajectory that they're taking and the way that Epiphanius is writing about them. Yeah, it's it's fascinating looking into the history of that and seeing how it uh, stretches across you know into um, you know our our church age t- today. I, I you mentioned the Book of Enoch, and I wanted to ask you about the Book of Enoch because, of course, um, the Qumran community held it in high regards. Uh, how how wh- how did they view the Book of Enoch during that you know like the time of Jesus? How did they view uh, that, or even the second century BC around that time? And then how are we as Christians? 
today meant to understand the book of Enoch? Because I think a lot of people have some confusion about this. You get extremes on both sides. You get Christians that say you absolutely shouldn't even look at it or you'll burst into flames, you know, because it's so evil. <laughs> then you get other Christians, yeah, and you get other Christians that say, well, we need to put it in the Bible. It belongs in the Bible. It's, it's the 67th book of the Bible, yeah. you know, all this ridiculous stuff. So you get these extremes. Uh, and I think there's a lot of confusion about it. So how, how did the Qumran community view uh, the book of Enoch, and how are we as Christians today meant to understand it? Well, again, you know, sort of, sort of drilling down in, back into the um, the theology of the Qumran community. That the Essenes were, um, they were an expectant group. You know, they they were they were clearly, um, in my mind, that it seems that they were they were clearly. They did everything that they did from leaving the, the temple infrastructure and going out into the desert. They did all of that because they were they were they wanted to focus on one expectation, and that was the arrival of the Messiah. You know, you you read their stuff, and it's 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 apocalyptic. You know, it, it's it's expecting. Um, the next chapter, in other words, it's it's expecting the end of this age and the beginning of the next one, and, and wrapped up in all of that, of course, wrapped up in all of that, of course, is the uh, uh, the expectation that the Messiah is going to come back on on the scene. Um, and I, I I tend to think that, particularly because the scholarship points to the first century AD kind of being the zenith of of the Essene uh, community. And if that's the case, that would certainly make sense when you start to look at, at the kind of stuff that John the Baptist is talking about, the phraseology that Jesus is also using. Um, you know, it, you know, just, just reading it from that, it, it looks like the Essene, at least some of the Essenes recognize that, well, we don't have to wait anymore. Um, because you know we've we've got we've got this this book that it has to be centuries if not millennia older than the actual writing down because Enoch is the culmination of of oral tradition just like the entire you know Torah is the culmination of, of oral tradition it existed in oral form long before it was ever written down the, the hebrews don't have a written language until the 10th or, or 9th century or excuse me the 11th or 10th century bc uh and so in like manner you know enoch is kind of a culmination of all of that oral tradition uh and clearly because you you get you get you sort of to, I, guess, I guess to sort of use a, a Jungian phraseology, you get archetypes of um, uh, not just the the teacher or the son of man or, or the Messiah or whatever, but also the end of the age and even the you know intimations of the Antichrist can be found in in a lot of that. And so, um, you know, I, I think that because Jesus's ministry was so ambulatory, you know, he would, you know, there would be Essenes that, that would be hearing a lot of this and putting two and two together and saying, 
you know, I think we've got our guy here. I don't think we have to wait much longer for this. Um, and so, you know, Enoch, Enoch would have been, you know, of central importance, I think, particularly in that, that zenith period of the first century A.D. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, that Enoch is apocalyptic, and, and it obviously is. Do, do you believe that the book of Enoch has accurate prophecy? And if so, what does it say about our time or our, uh, our future? Can we, can we glean anything from the book of Enoch pertaining to our time today? You know, again, it's, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a date setter, but, you know, by the same token, you know, where, where Jesus chides the Pharisees for being able to predict when it was going to rain, but they couldn't read the signs of the times around them. I think in like manner, we can apply, you know, the book of Enoch um, to our own time. And the fact that it says that it was made for, you know, a generation in the, in the, in the future. It, well, it, even if it isn't our exact generation, it speaks more to us than it did at the time that it was written. Um, then it was just a forewarning. Now it's, you know, it's a handbook in a lot of ways. Uh, and I, I think, you know, without getting too science fiction about things, you know, because there's such commentary, you know, in Enoch on the pre-flood world and what's going on with with the Watchers and the Nephilim, we're at the point now to where um, that, that sort of practical combination of practical sciences and occult knowledge that the Watchers taught humanity um we're at the point now to where we're starting to see a lot of things that blur the line between science and magic and i think if there's any commentary i mean my gosh you know the news about the uh the chimera the the human monkey chimera came out you know and we've been doing that probably for for decades it's just that we just get to see the surface news about that um and we're in the quantum age right now we're, we're we we have super colliders that are you know as we speak probably creating artificial black holes um you know and even the people that work at places like cern report very very strange things you know outside the realm of scientific quantification um Quantum computing in any other language would seem to be magic because it quantum computers dump their questions literally into other dimensions to derive the the answers. Um, so I, I think in in a way because of the manner in which this sort of new technology is unfolding and perhaps even the purposes uh, that it's being used for. Um, I, I think that that sort of points us back to what the Watchers were teaching humanity and why they were teaching it to them in the pre-flood world. Um, that's one reason why I think Enoch is going to become more and more pertinent. Um, uh, as we see more of this, you know, being released to the public, uh, you know, we're... I, I, Again, I'm not a, I'm not a date setter, uh, and I'm certainly not a prophet. But uh, again, it's sort of it's hard to ignore the signs of the times. You know that that that, that the kinds of events that happen in the pre-flood world are starting to you know unfold now. You know, and beyond that, the kind of 
lawlessness that was ep epiphenomenal uh, of the activity of the Watchers and the Giants would seem to be pertinent uh, as well. Yeah, I agree. It's amazing to read through the Book of Enoch and and see how relevant it it actually is for our day today. And uh, like like you said, it's it's unique in the fact that it's more pertinent for today than it was when it was first written, which is uh, absolutely uh, amazing. And what's cool about it too is, um, you know, we have the Ethiopic version of, of Enoch and that's, that's really extensive. We got a lot, we have a lot there. And then in the Dead Sea Scrolls to, to me, uh, we, we have enough fragments to where you can compare the two and see they are extremely, extremely close. Uh, so much yeah. so that if people say, well, you know, the Ethiopic version could just be fabricated or made up. It's like, well, if if that were true, they they would have had to have known which parts of the Dead Sea Scroll version were going to degrade, you know, which parts were going to be left, right. and they would have had to fake around that. And I, I just don't see how that's even remotely possible. So uh, in, in my opinion, based on these comparisons that we can look at, I, I think that, uh, you know, it's, the Ethiopic version isn't going to be a perfect uh, translation, but I think it's I think it's really close. It's definitely close enough to where we can still get something uh, from it. And so it's, it's amazing that there is quite a bit in there about our day and what we're heading into. I'll tell you what, we're going to take a quick break, but before we do, uh, Judd, where can people follow you online and get a hold of your materials? Uh, well, certainly they can look at burtonbeyond.com. Um, the Institute of Biblical Anthropology website is tioba.org, and both of those are undergoing some much-needed renovation right now, so if people will bear with me. Uh, Facebook, uh, YouTube, um, uh, I do several programs, the Beyond Report, uh, Quick Classics, which is sort of uh, Greek and Roman and Jewish uh, classics that, that, that uh, people can get snippets of, and uh, occasionally Antiquity X and Sunday School X, which are, are, are more visually driven. Um, but uh, yeah, those are, the, those are the big places. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we have a lot more to talk about, but we're going to do that in the members only section right after this. Dr. Ken Johnson and I, if, uh, if those of you out there are familiar with Dr. Ken Johnson, he's been a guest on before. We're going to have him back on again to talk about this calendar. But um, he has a website called dsscalendar.org, and it's basically an online version of the Dead Sea Scroll calendar, which is a great resource. It's for free. Anybody can use it. But it does also mean that you have to – it's not an app. It's a website. So you have to pull out your phone every time you want to look at it and, and scroll around and look for things. So I reached out to Ken and I said, hey, what would you think about us uh, kind of like going into business together? But what, what would you say about producing a print calendar? Because I, I know how to do that. He already designed the calendar, so the hard work's done. I know how to get it into print and get it out to people. What, what do you say? And he was all for it. He was excited about it. So Ken and I worked together and produced the Ancient Dead Sea Scroll calendar in print form. And this is for this year. Uh, and it, it's it's absolutely beautifully uh, printed. There are eight different styles, eight different uh, versions of this calendar that people can get if they want to. But basically what you have is, I don't know if people can see that, but you have the Dead Sea Scroll 
uh, calendar on the top with all the feast days and everything. And then on the bottom, you have the normal, just American regular kind of calendar. Even uh, even if you if you get the square one, the square style, you even get like pictures for St. Patrick's Day and the holidays and stuff like that. Uh, so that is for this year. It starts in March. So don't think, well, it's four months into the year by now. There's no point in getting one. The Dead Sea Scroll calendar starts in March. So it's a great time to pick one up. But as I said, we also have uh, several other options. We have three different poster versions, which are just, you know, they're just posters. Uh, we have three different versions of that. We have um, a desk calendar style. Uh, so, you know, th this is like if you if you have a family member or a friend or something that has a desk job or something, this is, this is a great gift. Uh, and then we also have this little CD case version, which is, I thought this was a uh, pretty innovative and cool, but it just opens like a CD, but you can stand it on your desk like that. And then it's, uh, you just have cards. They, they come out as cards. There's, uh, the calendar on one side, and then there's, uh, the American holidays on the, on the back side. And you just set it on your on your desk or wherever like that. So if people want that, there is a link in the description below. And by the time this episode airs, we should have uh, the link right at dailyrenegade.com. So if you go to dailyrenegade.com right now, you should, if I'm timing this out right, you should see a graphic right on the page on the login screen. You don't have to be a member to take advantage of this, but uh, it'll, uh, we'll put it right on the login screen dailyrenegade.com. You'll see a graphic there. You can click on that, pick your calendar, and uh, we'll, we'll keep doing this every year. Or you can go to Dr. Ken Johnson's website, biblefacts.org or dsscalendar.org, and you can see the same graphic there and get it there. Either way, it takes you to the same place, and uh, your purchase of a calendar goes both to help support Ken's ministry and Daily Renegade. So uh, if you already know that you love us both and you want a calendar, that's the place to go. Uh, okay, so we are going to take a break and we're going to pick this back up in the members only section. If you haven't had a chance yet, again, please go to dailyrenegade.com and get a membership today. If you get a monthly or yearly membership, you'll have full access uh, to my newest film dealing with how Christians should look at the UFO disclosure movement that's been opening up more and more in our government today. It seems like every day now we're getting new uh, news headlines on how the government is admitting to more and more and more. Well, how are we as Christians to respond to that? And what is this connection between UFO disclosure events and major events in Israel's uh, history and geopolitics in the Middle East? Because things are heating up there too. And these two seemingly different things uh, converge somehow. So the film gets into all that. Um, and it, it, I'm in it. Derek Gilbert is in it. Uh, we have uh, Lieutenant Colonel Robert McGinnis, uh, Steve Ciccolani, uh, Pastor Steve, if you guys uh, know him from, from YouTube and other various places. My wife, Christina, is in it. So it's a great lineup. It's also narrated by Zachary Lautitas. If you're familiar with that show, Prison Break, he was in that. He's been in a couple other movies and stuff since then. But he actually got me and Derek's book, The Day the Earth Stands Still, which is what this film is based on. Uh, he got a hold of that about a year ago, and uh, it, it really inspired him to reach out to me and Derek and then do some research uh, on his own. So we're going to be having him on the show sometime soon because he's got some amazing insights uh, especially just being connected with Hollywood and seeing what's going on there. This is a truly historic moment. It will be known as the Abraham Accord. Ever since the news broke of the peace agreement between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, many Christians have been wondering what it all means. Is it significant? 
Is it momentous and historic? Or could it even be prophetic? Most importantly, after this, what comes next? Everybody said this would be impossible. That film, What Comes Next, it is only available for paying members, but if you want a free trial, there are still some free things for you. Uh, most specifically, we have a free episode of The Sharpening Report right now with financial expert and Christian Terry Saka right on the front page of DailyRenegade.com, which explains the financial crisis that we're in now and how we as Christians can safely protect our assets with an actual Christian company. This company is amazing. It's basically a ministry effort for us Christians, and it's done through precious metals. So you can go there uh, or just go to Cornerstone Assets in the link in the description below and request more uh, information. I have some silver myself, and I believe that every Christian should absolutely be doing this instead of trusting satanic organizations and doomed-to-fail currency options such as fiat and the banks and all, all of that with, you, with your resources uh, and what you leave behind for your family. At least with Cornerstone, you're um, working with Christians. You, you, know, you have to protect yourself, your family, your assets, and Cornerstone is the only Christian company that I trust with something so important and vital. So check it out. Uh, more information at dailyrenegade.com. Go ahead and watch that episode of The Sharpening Report. It's free for everybody and get the information. If you haven't had a chance yet, head on over to dailyrenegade.com and get a membership today where we will continue our conversation with Dr. Judd Burton. Members, hang on the line. Everyone else, thank you so much. Take care and God bless. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.